Алекса, стоп. A podcast about how technology is changing our lives. With Robert Belgrave and Jim Balls. So this is a very special edition of Alexa Stop. I am here in the studio. Rob doesn't have a microphone, which means it's just me talking and not him in this segment. But what I do have standing opposite me is Mr. Lawrence Weber from Karmarama. And why on earth are we here? Um, we're here, and by the way, thank you for having me, because um, we thought it would be a good thing for Innovation Social to do some podcasts with Alexa Stop. So that's the reason why Rob hasn't got the mic and I have. I know. It's big, it's brave, it's strong. He might fight you for it in a minute. He's given us the mic discipline chat, though, which, uh, which is the an chat. essential part of any podcast. He's good at discipline, is Rob, and he's laughing. So we should move on. Shouldn't we, Jim? So what's this all about? Um, So we have got um, three amazing guests together to talk about computational creativity, uh, which is something that the advertising industry has kind of flirted with accepting and rejecting for the last few years. But I think we've got to a point where there's been some real developments in AI and machine learning that are having a big effect on the wider creative industry as well as advertising. We know lots of people from the agency land listen uh, to your podcast, we thought it would be a good topic for us both to explore. It's a solid topic, isn't it? Because will we be able to ask mm. Google Assistant before we know to just, you know, do something creative? Uh, I hope so, because it would it would remove the overhead of a lot of agencies. <laughs> well, you know, and they are filled with overhead. I mean, you only need to look at the snack cupboard to realise that. Yes. Um, and, and so this idea, I mean, a lot of um, computational sort of creativity uh, focuses on just like making things better. But can uh, computers genuinely be creative? I think that's a good question. So I think uh, I think that computers do optimization really well. Uh, we're in the middle of a revolution in advertising industry because they can do it so well, sometimes without showing human beings how they're doing it. Um, I personally don't think, well, that's what I want our three guests to explore, uh, that um, we're yet at a stage where a computer can do anything more than being a, be a creative assistant rather than a creative director. But isn't it just about, you know, what you feed to the computer? What if you sent your computer on a gap year? That's, um, that's an interesting concept. You'd have to send someone with it. Otherwise, it'd get in trouble. It'd drink like weird beer in Thailand and come back. I mean, if you've given your computer the experience of riding a scooter that you've hired for a few quid across like a little beach shack, and you've like given it the experience of like getting lost with no money, and then you ask it to like knock up a design for something. I still think you get a bad direct response ad, but maybe one, maybe one that smelt slightly of weed. Of course, bad direct response ads tends to be the ones that work, right? They do, unfortunately, which is another one of the things we're going to discuss with our guests. Is it important at this stage that we stop making up nonsense and invite our guests into it, the studio? It possibly would be. So um, we're gonna, we'll be right back and introduce our guests. shuffled this tight but beautifully formed studio and got our three guests in. So I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and then once they've done that we will start. So Rachel, tell everyone who you are and what you do. Yeah, so hi, I'm Rachel Falconer and I run Goldsmiths Digital Studios, which is a creative prototyping spin-out of Goldsmiths University. Um, We specialise in machine learning, AR, VR, and AI projects for the creative industries. I'm also a curator and writer um, working with network technology and innovation. Thank you very much. I'm already intellectually intimidated, so it's a good job to have Alex on next. Alex, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Alex Hophouse. I work at Saatchi & Saatchi, uh, so I'm trying very, very hard to drag us into the uh, 20... 20- 
first century. I'm the innovation director there. Uh, as well as that, I run with Tom, standing next to me, an event called I'll Be Back, which is an attempt to understand uh, how AI is going to affect our industry. So relatively relevant, I hope. Thank you very much, Alex. And uh, last but not least, Tom. Hi, I'm Tom Ollerton. I am the innovation director at We Are Social. But actually, at this moment in time, I am on sabbatical for three months. I've been gagging for quite a long time to really work on a creative AI project that's totally top secret. You may be able to tease some information out of me as we go. So I'm a currently a agency guy, but also a secret non-agency guy at the same time. Okay, thank you. So Tom, imagine I'm asking you this question at the end of the podcast. What is your secret AI project? So part of being an innovation person, I think is that's cool about it is you get to spend a lot of time thinking about the future and you meet a lot of businesses that are having a punt at creating our future and after a while you end up joining those dots together and if you formed a really clear vision of what you think the future of an industry is going to be then why not just go straight there so i'm working in partnership with lots of different interesting ai startups to find a new way of making our industry work i'm going to go for the simple start what do you think the future of our industry is the future of our industry is a balance between human intelligence and machine creativity. I think that the industry would rather that machines didn't come into it. But I think in reality, as I think some of the examples will show that people will talk about, is that machines are capable of creating good stuff from time to time. Uh, very good at creating music at this point in time. Uh, and that's going to extend out into, into photo and video and film. And, and if machines can create those things as well as or better than a human, then we're going to have to see a change in the way that agencies work. And I really want to be a big part of that. Thank you very much. So Rachel, picking up on some of the kind of themes Tom talks about, you sit outside of um, the, the wonderful advertising industry that we're in, but obviously know, uh, are very aware of how it works. What's, what's your current view from your experience of where we are with computational creativity, just to kind of kick things off? So I do come from an agency background. I have dabbled in that wild world. I'm currently in the art world, but liaising and interfacing a lot with commercial orientated projects. So I think the big thing for the future is, I guess, going back to Marshall McLuhan and owning the means of production as much as creatives can and being aware of the politics and dynamics they encounter and, and interact with when they're using new technologies. And I think the future of the advertising industry in and of itself is to find the right modes of expression and and modes of, I guess, manipulation of those new methods of communication. Um, Non-linear narratives, robbing from gameplay, for example, is just one that could be explored a lot further. So you've painted a, I guess, complicated but quite positive point of view that if creative people understand the tools at their disposal... Um, and embrace technology, that there's a there's a kind of future for creativity that isn't completely owned by an algorithm. I think that's right. I think a lot of the work that we're doing at the moment at Goldsmiths is creating tools for creative people, whatever their discipline and whatever their industry. So I do think that there is a, a case to be made for fragmenting down the kind of monopolization of um, of creative tools that are being produced at the moment by the likes of Google, etc. Not to diminish what they're doing, but I think that there is the possibility and almost the, the kind of motivation to break down those tools of production to make them more bespoke to the creatives and their particular briefs that they're working to. Great. Alex? Well, I think what, what you're saying, Richard, is very interesting because a lot of the problems that we encounter within 
uh, I don't know, the advertising world is that creatives don't fully understand how best to use those tools or how to use them to their advantage. And actually, I think they see them more sort of from a fearful position, wondering like, yeah, will some, are they going to make a better ad than me? Like if you're a creative who specializes in direct response advertising, then I mean, realistically, there's a good argument for a machine making those for you nowadays. Yeah, I, I definitely gathered that from the conversations and dialogues I'm having with people at the moment. But I also think there is room for the sentient, empathetic creation of ideas that should be unclouded and untethered by in-depth knowledge of algorithms and coding. So there is a there's a balance to be struck. Okay, so that's interesting. So you're saying that the more there's a point of no return where you, you get so immersed in how things works and how a tool's constructed that you exactly. your creativity becomes clouded. It does, and there's also need to know basis. I think that I think there's, there's, there is that, but that comes with any any mastery of any tool is is you use it for your own purpose, right? So that's another point I think is important to assimilate into this discussion. Alex, what's the current view of creatives? Not necessarily in your agency, but you think in the industry when you say things like computational creativity to a creative in an advertising agency, what's, what type of response do you get? <laughs> how, how, fear, how fearful are you that uh, they'll be throwing a Sharpie at you? Do you know what? I think originally there was a lot of fear around it, but I think we've definitely kind of, we're getting to a place where that's, where that's changing. People understand that, you know, the creative assistant approach is really effective. The most exciting thing for us is the ability to use the data properly. I think that's where, we, where we're hitting the biggest barriers in that creative directors, for example, are very keen to go on a whim rather than go on data. But we're definitely, that's the shift I think that needs to happen everywhere for us to start really making like amazing use of AI. So yeah, there's, there's, there's a little bit of a, a fear, but it's getting a lot better, certainly for us. I think that's what AI and machine learning in particular really relies on the data sets that provide the basis for the learning or the training or like we were discussing off mic we were talking about um perhaps you know what used to be economics and statistics and you know maybe it's a question of semantics but everything does rely on the quality of data sets and that includes avoiding data bias which can produce either biased information and biased learning or move away from the diversity issue which is a problem within obviously adland and beyond my issue with this is that it's all made based on the assumption that the, the current model is the right one, that we need a big idea. We need to produce one big idea that's resonant with millions of people. So the reason we have a big idea is because it's supposed to be efficient, right? We want to hit a target audience of 20 million people. So if we create one ad or one post or one video or whatever it is, and all of those people get it and then go out and take the desired action, then that's successful, right? That's what we do. But we only do that because budgets have made us do that because no one's got, a, well, not most people don't have a budget to do 50 TV ads or 100 TV ads or a thousand or a million. Um, they certainly don't have budget to do a TV ad for every individual person. And I think that the clever, clever use of AI machine learning will allow us to create individual creative responses for every single person. And it's much more conceivable for an AI to produce a personalized bit of content based on someone's declared interests on social, for example, than it is for an AI to produce an advert that's going to be resonant with 20 million people. It's hard enough for a human to do that, let alone us teach a computer how to do it. I suppose, wouldn't it be possible to feed the data that analysed and predicted the biggest trend? So trend predicting is something that algorithms have done for a long time. If it can see a trend coming and tap into active wear and retro fitness, it could create something that 
based on that that it thinks will resonate with a lot of people? I mean, I think it could give that data to a strategist who could then write a brief for a creative. I think, I think asking it to do it directly, I think is at the moment too risky. And I wouldn't be sure of what the output of that would be. Uh, you know, for example, a copyright and algorithm could write, just do it for Nike, right? Could totally come up with that, but it would also come up with just do it and you have her other version, but it wouldn't have any idea which one was right. So sure, a creative algorithm could come up with all kinds of stuff, but it does need that human intelligence to make sure that the thing that's going out isn't rubbish. So, so I was going to say that um, I asked my creative team here at Manifesto earlier about this, and they felt very comfortable in the zone where data was fed to an algorithm and uh, you fed it some stuff and it came out with variations. But the true creativity and conceptual side of it, they were like, that's not going to happen. Um, so maybe we'll jump off from there and, and talk a bit about that. But are they, are they not linked? You know, it's, it's not your, your data is your creativity, yeah? So de- if you take creativity within Adland as opposed to the art world, so I, I look at creativity within Adland as problem solving, that, is, that lines up very neatly with computational output and decision making. So it is, again, a question of control over your own creativity and using, you know, specific data sets and specific pools of data to align with your creative idea. So it is this, this kind of coordination of machine and creative human being, perhaps. So, so I guess potentially, although the slight issue I have with that is that, that if you feed data into an algorithm and a problem, you'll get a very rational response. So it's a very overused term, but you wouldn't have got, let's get a guy to dress up as a gorilla and play the drums to Phil Collins if the problem you had fed it was Cadbury's need to sell more chocolate. And, so, and I think that's the classic creative's defence is that rational things like how big should the price be and how big should the buy button be and should it be this product or that product. I don't really see in five years' time many creators will complain that that job's been taken away from them. I think where they have a point is needing to emotionally understand people and look at data but get a human being to write a brilliant brief so another bunch of human beings can jump off and come up with something irrational is probably the defense against that i guess what i'm interested in is whether you can teach an algorithm to be random and irrational yeah so a lot of a lot of creative that i work with would argue that that the spark of irrationality the spark of genius (laughs) and they'd probably say is the is the thing that sets us apart i think you can you can ask a machine to come up with 50 random ideas and then ask people there's no way of knowing whether they're right or not or whether they're perfect for the brand so yeah i think it's uh I think that's, that, that's, we, we still hold that at the moment. That makes sense. So you, you just raised an interesting point there about judgment. So there's a startup that's an AI-based startup called Scriptbook, which based on its own evidence, but let's assume its evidence is correct, that it makes a better commercial judgment about which films Hollywood studios should fund than, than people who sit behind desks in Hollywood studios. So that then that's not a conceptual development, but to your point about judgment is that it would suggest that AI and that computer makes a better creative judgment than people who are in their, in their industry, creative directors or exec producers. I think it's interesting with Scriptbook, but there's obviously like a huge human element to that. So you go, okay, I'm going to write a screenplay called whatever, and I'm going to feed it into Scriptbook, and it's going to tell me whether it's good or bad. So that's it's a computer looking at a huge human involvement as opposed to computational creativity, which is like, right, we're going to get a computer to do the research, come up with the idea, produce that idea, and deliver that idea to market, which is, a, I think, a different thing. And Scriptbook, though brilliant, 
is um, I, d- I don't see that as computational creativity. Yeah. Although I did suggest they apply it to adverts as well, and they said, "Well, that's a good idea." Yeah, it would <laughs> it, it would it would save us from some adverts that we probably wish we'd been saved from. But one thing machines can do can do really efficiently and expertly is process huge amounts of data. And the reason that we don't understand how they can't process that data and turn that into creative is because we're humans. Because it's something that we can do. I can absorb a load of data and then come up with something that is relevant to that data. Whereas I don't think we've yet bridged that gap where huge amounts of data get turned into insights, which then get turned directly into creative. I think the humans are in the middle of that at the moment. And so I've been looking at some platforms recently that are in a different space, in a non-creative space, in robotic process automation and AI associated with that. And one of the things that they're about is individual workers or processes, if you like, And the AI is mostly concerned with the ability to call on another service or another process or another worker. So do you think in terms of the technology in this space, it's about people encapsulating the different components that you just described and then giving them the ability to call on each other? I mean, that would be ideal. Yeah, but (laughs) I think that's quite sci-fi at the moment. I think we both experienced this, Lawrence, that there's um, the talk that was given recently, IPA, the Sunspring um, example of the the sci-fi film that was co-created or at least sourced from AI algorithms and you know whether that was successful or not is incredibly subjective because yes it didn't make sense from a logistical level but when has sci-fi ever you know ever actually made sense to anybody so I think we're I think the point that I'd like to sort of return to is looking at creativity as a technology that we're we're encountering technology and creativity on on a different sort of set of engagement or terms of engagement at the moment so I think for the creatives working in the advertising industry it is vital for them to look at the possibilities of a newly envisaged creative platform or platforms that they're looking to expand on and data sets and synergy with them is not just a way of augmenting their creative process but it could be a way of accelerating into different new approaches perhaps it's not sort of making current process and current creative processes augmented but it's actually looking for something that will propel the industry into the future perhaps okay so an example of that might be what kind of how data and virtual reality works or well certainly the work that I've seen in virtual reality both in the film world and the advertising world is limited at the moment and that might be because of the democratization or non democratization of the technology but it, it, I think essentially there's a shortfall in creatives producing work for that particular environment because it's not a film environment it's not an ad you know short form environment it's something else so that is it's that something else that needs to be perhaps looked at more intensively. I think there's uh, two technologies here that are kind of hiding in plain sight for computational creativity. And the first is uh, Spotify's Discover Weekly. don't know if everyone uses it, but um, as I understand it, it looks at other people who have similar music taste to you and whatever is missing from your music taste that exists in theirs, that gets put into your playlist. And maybe I'm just a soft romantic type, but... Um, Every time I listen to Discover Weekly, there's one or two, maybe even three songs that moves me. And being a 40-year-old bloke, you know, that doesn't happen with music very often these days. Um, and that is computational creativity. And uh, far less emotionally is on Gmail or mobile. When you read an email from someone, so um, why are you late for this podcast? Um, there's pre-written answers at the bottom that you can just click on. That is computational creativity being totally accepted by the public and probably accepted by the 
the creatives that we're talking about. So these are, it's already here and it's already happening. And then there's a, I think it's a small extrapolation from a functional Gmail and an emotional Spotify to go from where advertising is now to where it could be in three to four years. So in both the things that you and Rachel have just talked about is kind of um, reframing what we mean by creativity. So we seem very focused on how technology will help us make more optimized direct response or help us make um, better radio ads or make decisions about what type of content does or doesn't go into a, into a kind of TV ad or a content series. Rachel, you're talking about um, emerging spaces like VR and AR and how they become different ways of telling stories. And you're talking about quite u- things that are creative but are quite useful. Um, and they're not creative in the sense that I think most people, certainly within the advertising or art world, might think of the work they do. So do you think we're ultimately it's about reframing what we mean by creativity to, to get to where we're going to get to? Um, it's a sort of thing. It's the difference between computational creativity and computational creative. Uh, computational creativity is a machine being self-aware, having the intent to come up with something creative and doing it which doesn't exist, which is a long way off as far as I can, I can see. Then computational creative, which is the stuff that we're talking about, which is a machine producing some creative work that could work in some form of advertising to help sell a product. And that is here. That is, there's no denying that that is a, a, a part of everyone's, or should be a part of every agency's business. Um, but I think what we're debating is how, how happy people are for that to be a part of their jobs. So I think it feels like people are not, people are not necessarily happy for um, them to cede ultimate kind of conceptual control to um, to a machine, um, and that to, to your your kind of point about there being a difference between computational creative, which is basically optimizing, and com- computational creativity, which is pure conceptual. Um, but there's sort of is there not occasionally things in between? So a recent musical called On the Fence claims that although it's a diminishing number every time you read a press release, but uh, that that 25% of the musical again debate which 25% was created by an ai now that was it being fed a bunch of things that already existed but it made a choice about what components of a musical would be commercially successful the telegraph made a pithy comment and said computer says so so but the guardian made an interesting point inadvertently they they kind of dismissed it as being middle of the road and very kind of appealing to the mass but a lot of culture and creativity appeals to the mass. X Factor is essentially a bunch of human beings having a model for what music is in their heads, which is supported by sales data, to reproduce very formulaic music that appeals to people. So are we, are we getting to a stage where we're saying that we need to retreat into the world of high art and creativity and anything that's below that high watermark is going to become, going to become the work of an algorithm? I think the reality is is that there's a lot of our industry that we're not very proud of. If we just address the elephant in the room, sometimes we're working for brands that we're not particularly happy about, uh, but they pay our, our rent and, our, and so on and so forth. And actually, the really juicy, sexy, fun bit that we all look back on and you know, with strong feelings is the creative bit. And so the idea that a machine's going to come along and take that away is absolutely terrifying for everyone. And I think that that I think it's more of an emotional attachment not, than a reasonable one. And I've got a couple of stats here. This really isn't me at all. But um, there was a research by Capgemini, and they studied a thousand companies, and they said the share of organisations implementing AI that are achieve, uh, able to achieve the following benefits: AI is making our organisation more creative. A thousand companies, seventy-four percent said that that's what they're using AI for. 
However, Sysmos did some research around the same time saying that 37% of marketers are investing in AI. So it's why, why is our quote-unquote creative industry 40% behind every other industry who's looking to use AI as a, as a creative tool? And I think the reason for that is, is a historical attachment to the love of the creative process. And that's per- perfectly understandable. But over a matter of time, I think that will change. So do you see it, the adoption curve being the dirty secret of the accounts we don't really want to work on using the AI and we keep the stuff that's nice and juicy for the uh, human process? <laughs> I, I mean, I definitely see that, <laughs> I think. I think it tends to be the the, uh, the accounts that, that really want to adopt AI as the ones who want to drive the hard line and want to do a lot of sales, which historically are not the things that everyone loves writing copy about. Um, so yeah, I think there's a, there's, there's a direct correlation between... I'm not going to name any brands here, but brands that <laughs> brands that like driving driving the bottom line a lot harder than they do driving their brand message are really massively picking this up. Certainly, where I work. Yeah, and um, Lawrence, back to you. Would you, when you're talking about X Factor, are you including Matt Cardell's work in what you said? Uh, yeah, I particularly. That was my was my frame of reference. If if only he could be reproduced or replaced by an uh, by an algorithm, the world would be a better place. So. Um, it's been a great debate. Thank you all for coming along. I thought we'd end by giving people something something useful, something they can take away, something tangible. You can tell I work, work in advertising and I had to run a meeting. I was going to ask each of the, our three guests for an example of where computational creativity has been applied in a really practical sense, a tool, a startup, something they should go and read, an event they could go to that uh, would allow them to learn more. So, uh, Rachel, should we start with you? Sure. So I would suggest from a Goldsmiths Digital Studios perspective to check out the bronze format tool which is a tool that we've recently developed in the, for the music tech scene but it shows um, exactly how computational creativity can work on a very open source basis so if you go to the goldsmiths digital studios website you can um, check it out there um, yeah thank you very much alex so my recommendation would be to check out a company very creatively named creative.ai uh, and that there are a couple of guys um, in Europe who have been working on creating a plugin for Photoshop uh, and the way they've been doing it is by tracking the way people use Photoshop for the last couple of years as well as interviewing people who use Photoshop and learning how best to uh, to make like the processes that creatives don't enjoy on Photoshop much more efficient and effective um, I don't you can't install it yet but yeah check out creative.ai it's really amazing what they're doing sounds great um, and we'll finish off with Tom once again, massively self-servingly, uh, Alex and I run an event called I'll Be Back, which is the intersection of creativity, ads and AI. We get down an academic, a brand, a startup and an agency to talk about how they are actually practically applying these kind of tools and techniques and theories to their work. So that's a natural next step from uh, this discussion is to come and be part of uh, the discussion and build the future of creative AI in our industry. So I think, Jim, um, uh, we've been quite philosophical up to now. So it'd be good to get our guests to give us um, some insights into what they think is happening right now and maybe ask each one of them for their best examples of computational creativity, either in from the kind of advertising world or kind of broader arts world. So, um, Tom, should we start with you? So the campaign that I really loved last year was for Nutella. And what they did was use a computational creative algorithm to design 7 million different jars. So each jar that was part of this thing had a completely different design on it. Uh, So what the 
the creative director, I'm assuming, will have done was sign off the algorithm as opposed to 7 million different bits of creative. I'm guessing that it, you couldn't have, like, I don't know, rude shapes on it or, you know, swear words or something like that. So it, it created a, a playing field within, within which to create jars. And everyone who bought one got their own individual one. It was shared loads on social. It was massively popular. But what that really reminded me of is self-driving cars. So the people that... Um, uh, you know, choose a self-driving car company. They don't sign off every journey. They don't go, how do you drive from Newcastle to London and then sign it off? They sign off the algorithm that decides. And I think we're going to see more of that in advertising where uh, the role of a creative director will be to work with a chief technical officer to go, right, we're going to sign off an algorithm that produces hundreds of millions of different variants of a of an advert or a, or a script or, or whatever it is. In the context of an algorithm, though, in the sort of AI and sort of machine learning world, the algorithm might change over time out of the control of those people because it itself learns about what happens if there's other inputs. Do you think someone can sign off on the learning? Well, we already do. So we work, I've been working a lot with um, IP contracting around baseline technology that relies on machine learning and the ownership of that and with the legal premise that it will develop and become owned by and distributed by a number of different bodies and entities. And are you hanging with IP lawyers on this? Yeah. I'm sure they're loving it. Oh, I'm loving it. <laughs> Nothing quite like a legal meeting. <laughs> um, cool. Um, let's carry on. Um, so is there an example that you've seen? Um, sure. So uh, one of our colleagues at Goldsmiths produced a piece for the Whitney uh, Museum in New York last year that was based on a machine learning um, AI algorithm that learnt Blade Runner, the film, frame by frame, and then decided that it would wanted to re-remember that film in a machine vision language, a machine vision memory way so it was basically the first instance that i've seen of an ai machine actually remembering a piece of creative output in it on its own terms so essentially the machine is creating memories from an existing piece of it's creating its own memory it's so we think about human memory as being a very human kind of defining feature of being human and and also of creativity, I would, I would suggest that a lot of great creativity comes from cultural appropriation, which by definition needs somebody to remember something, yeah? Whereas this was interesting because a machine is not usually, you know, given the quality of memory, whereas this was the first time I'd been able to see what machine, how a machine remembers and see the creative potential thereof of that machine, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's great. Alex? I'm going to hugely lower the tone. <laughs> so my favourite is an actual robot. I mean, obviously, I really love the other ones too. But I, when I was at, <laughs> I was at Domexco, I, I met Paul, who works for Media Markt Saturn, um, which is a German, um, okay, I guess they're like a, a grocery store. And Paul has learned what can, like, what can, where consumers buy their products and which one's the most popular. So when people come into the store, he's learned to greet them and escort them to their aisle and people prefer to talk to Paul people prefer in-person to Paul than human beings and it's and it's still there now so that's probably my favourite in terms of what does Paul look like? Paul I've got I mean I can I'll, I'll put a link in this uh, in the bio but like uh, I'll show you I, I, I do love a good podcast photograph it's a special <laughs> yeah. special voice moment 
<laughs> Paul looks, looks like a salt shaker. <laughs> Paul's like a kind of, yeah, it doesn't look great, but you not believe how pleased Media Mark Satin were about Paul. And I, I kind of feel that. He's got like a classic robot look to him. He's kind of like white with lights, a little bit of R2-D2. So you wanted less cerebral. There we go. Yeah, it's like a low-rent low R2-D2 salt seller. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, Lawrence, can I ask you a question? Of course. As You're turning a, the tables. Being a big senior cheese dude at a big fancy agency with loads of money now, um, how are you imbuing your agency creative process with computational creativity? Uh, so I think we are at the stage of a lot of agencies or maybe kind of slightly at the top of the adoption curve of most agencies, which we are learning how to use data effectively in the creative process. We've learned um, by quite a lot of work we've been doing in the British Army how to get an AI to tell us what work is going to perform better and then make more of it and make less of the work that doesn't work. So there's still a creative in charge of the concept, but algorithms will tell that creative how much more of a particular theme of content they need to make. And that does lead to tension. So creatives get very involved with a particular person from the army that we've been shooting or a particular idea or a thread of content. And some of those threads of content have been stopped because they just prove not to have worked by the algorithm that, um, that measures media. So there's an element of, that's not conceptual creativity, but for, there's a slight element of creative direction from the algorithm because it's saying, based on my judgment, which is a commercial and engagement judgment, I want you to make less of this work. I'm not sure they realise they're being creatively directed by an algorithm, but in a, but, but they, they sort of are. I mean, not to talk shop too much, but I would equate that to, I mean, I'm a planner as well as an innovation person, and I would say that whenever I write a brief, there's always three or four ideas at the end of it, which kind of are creative direction. So I think if we can just accept that's what the machine's doing, then then we'll all be a bit happier. Mm. That's kind of what I say to everyone. So Alex, the kind of, if you extrapolate the kind of ability for AI to make very personalised content, um, there are some people that worry that in 20 years' time, the people will see their own individual units of content, which means that bigger cultural experiences become more difficult. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's very valid. It's, it's, it's a concern that I probably share with them. And actually, I think this is probably why we have the position of an agency versus and, and the robot. Um, so yeah, I've recently gotten into a, to a bit of an issue with Dave Trott, who I think he misunderstood me in thinking that I was saying that we should only be making personalized content. And that's the only thing that's valid. Um, whereas, whereas actually I believe, and I think he does too, that's why we kind of had the misunderstanding that, that big adverts and big concepts have the ability to create a, a, a public conversation as opposed to the private conversation, which is kind of made by this very personalized content, which speaks only to you. I think he was concerned that uh, if, we only, if all we have is private conversations, we'd have nothing to talk about. Uh, so he blocked me on Twitter. Um, I sent him an email. He was kind enough to respond and said that he didn't remember blocking me and then didn't unblock me. <laughs> so Dave, if you're listening. <laughs> Dave, if you're listening, un unblock Alex. He agrees with you. <laughs> I do agree with him. So, so do you imagine a future where there's just um, conversations where, you know, maybe someone meets another person and they're about the same age and they start to talk about um, shared personal references and they've been served so much content and so much advertising in their life that those magic moments where you feel you've got a connection with someone because you both saw a certain advert or you were both listened to a certain version of a song, are they going to disappear? 
I personally really hope not. I think that's that's something that, that binds us together. But I think there's space for both, and I think both have really like huge value. Um, the ability to target someone with personal content is extremely valuable, and it makes people when people see something that reflects them, they instantly respond to it much better. I mean, already, do you think there's already a decrease in those sort of big cultural moments? You know, from every time we watched Morecambe and Wise, well, before me, but but there was those Saturday night television programs that, that the family gathered around and watched. And, you know, okay, maybe six million people watched Saturday night takeaway with the real Ant and Deck rather than the Ant and Deck of tech. But um, those moments are becoming fewer and further between and the number of people watching them is less. Absolutely. As, the, as there are more channels and wider saturation of content, like, of course, there's fewer things that we have that we're going to be able to share with each other. There's no longer four channels. We're not all going to watch the same program on a Saturday night, but that's probably not the worst thing. I think we learn a lot more about culture that way. Or does it make those, in those, those experiences where we do have crossover deeper and better? That's a very romantic way of looking at it. I mean, I'd like to think so, but I mean, possibly. Playing devil's advocate, I would say that perhaps there are kind of... Um not exactly automated silos, but certainly aggregated silos being created of shared content experiences. Because of the data sets that we're using at the moment, it does create a certain false affinity or false emotional proximity in some viewing groups. Mm, that we, chamber. Yeah, exactly. That, that may or may not be um, risky in the future if it was to be accelerated so it's a, whole relationships could be based on uh, advertising our algorithms because people felt these shared connections that were only sort of generated through programmatic i think that a different role for agencies might be uh creating bigger experiences if there's a future where all advertising as we know it now is is all automated then uh, the ability for a brand to create a real world experience may, may be much more resonant. And if you look at retail, it's definitely moving away from a transactional experience, more of a kind of like central experience. Um, and I think that um, we may see the high street change altogether, whereas brands, they have a role in bringing people together in the real world away from digital devices where uh, converse to that when people are on their devices at home, what they are all getting is being served by computational creativity. Do you feel there's a... Um a geographical component to that. So so we're in Shoreditch at Manifesto's office and a lot of the shops around here are brand experience shops. If you're in any way Northern, which I am, uh, if you go to a high street in a Northern place, most of the shops have not been turned into a brand experience. And it's not entirely true. Greg's in Newcastle has a coffee shop. <laughs> and it's on a corner when it's double fronted. And the price of a sausage roll is less than the one around the corner from here. But, you know, there is a sort of sadness to the UK's high streets where they, a brand can fund something as a brand experience in one location. So it doesn't matter if they sell any trainers compared with a place where they would actually need to sell trainers. Is that something that's just going to accelerate? It could, could computational creativity do anything to reinvigorate our high street? Can I just be the end of the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> that was a fucking jump, wasn't it? <laughs> Oh, I was, wow. I was, I was going then, how can I bring this back on topic? <laughs> how about just say the topic of the podcast? 